Good afternoon, and welcome to another Banner Lecture here in the Robbins Family Forum at the Virginia Historical Society. I'm Nelson Lankford, Vice President for Programs. Our President, Paul Levengood, would have been here, except he was asked to give a talk across town at this very moment. So he's speaking, taking the gospel of the VHS across town, and I'm substituting for him. As Paul always does, I'd like to start by thanking the Times-Dispatch, uh, whose support helps make this series possible. Now, if you'll silence your cell phones, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Melvin Yurofsky is certainly no stranger to the VHS. He served as a member of our Board of, Trustee, Board of Trustees, and he also gave several excellent, excellent lectures here over the years. Most recently, he gave the Trustees Lecture in 2006. Mel is the author of two uh, VHS books. One was the companion volume to our exhibition called Commonwealth and Community, The Jewish Experience in Virginia. The other one was a splendid book called The Virginia Historical Society, the first 175 years. So Mel knows quite a bit about the institution um, which he served so faithfully for many years. Professor Yurofsky is co-editor of the five-volume collection of Louis Brandeis's letters. He's the author of American Zionism from Herzl to the Holocaust and of Louis Brandeis and the Progressive Tradition. His latest book is titled simply and elegantly, Louis Brandeis, A Life. Mel Yurofsky is a former professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University, where he also served as the chair of the history department. And he also teaches a class, a spring class, uh, once a year. So he keeps his hand in in the classroom. It's safe to say that his topic for today's lecture is one that no one else in America uh, knows better than Mel Yurofsky. Louis Brandeis was one of the most important and distinguished justices to sit on the United States Supreme Court. He was not only a reformer, a lawyer, and a jurist, but also a man of great complexity, passion, and wit. Professor Yurofsky draws on family papers and materials never before available to write really the first full-scale biography of this giant of American history in 25 years. In it, he gives a remarkable uh, account of Brandeis' influence on American society and jurisprudence and the electrifying story of his times. Here's what Alan Dershowitz wrote about the book in the New York Times Book Review. He described this study as, quote, a monumental, authoritative, and appreciative biography of the man Franklin D. Roosevelt called Isaiah. Yurofsky demonstrates why Brandeis still matters nearly 70 years after his death, unquote. Please welcome a very great friend of the Virginia Historical Society, Mel Yurofsky, who will speak to us about Louis Brandeis, an American legal giant. Thank you. It's always good to be back at the Society. Um, the book is dedicated to my wife, and when the first copy arrived um, last fall, you know, I unwrapped it and took it up to show it to her, and um, her comment was, can Louis move out of the house now? <laughs> Louis Brandeis has been living with us for 
more than 45 years. <laughs> and um, there have been a several times during that period when I would finish a project, such as the letters or a book you know, related to him, and um, I would confidently say, yes, no, he's, we're finished with him, and then he'd jump up and bite me again. I started getting involved with Brandeis when I was a graduate student at Columbia University. Uh, like all graduate students, I was looking for a doctoral dissertation that was limited, easy to do, and would make my name. I mean, that's, it's, that's all you really want in a dissertation. And Arthur Link, the great biographer of Woodrow Wilson, had written in one of his books that Louis Brandeis was the intellectual architect of the new freedom. And my graduate student's bulb went off, so I went trotting over to my sponsor, Bill Luchtenberg, and I said, this sounds like a dissertation topic. And Bill looked at it, and he said, yep, write it up. Now, in those days, Columbia had a much more relaxed way of approving dissertation topics. The candidate wrote a letter to his sponsor who showed it to a few friends, and if they didn't object, it was approved. Now, we didn't have the formal dissertation defense. So at this point, I am married. I have a one-year-old son, and I have my first job at some place called Ohio State University. I say someplace because to my wife's New York family, anything west of the Hudson was Indian country. <laughs> um, in fact, the first time they came out to visit us, their car was loaded with foods that they were sure we could not get out west. So we pile into the car and we drive to Columbus, which lo and behold had McDonald's, had other things, you know, it was civilized. Um, it had a newspaper, sort of. And um, came the first break, I go down to Washington, D.C. to look in the Woodrow Wilson papers at the Library of Congress and there's some stuff on Brandeis, but not very much. And I'm saying, gee, I hope there's a lot in the Brandeis papers down in Louisville, which is where I went on my next break. And there wasn't. Um, I got an article out of it, but not a dissertation. I changed the topic. But in going through the Brandeis papers, I was absolutely fascinated by what I was learning there. You know, the connections the man had, uh, what he did. I, I really did not know a lot about him. And so a colleague of mine in Ohio State, David Levy, both of us essentially graduate students, had the chutzpah to write to the University of Louisville to ask them if we could edit the Brandeis letters. And much to our great surprise, they said yes, and then the National Endowment for the Humanities gave us money to do it, and we were off and running. Um, Brandeis led to a number of other things. Um, it just happened to have been my luck of the draw, that I got those letters dealing with his role at, when he took over the American Zionist movement, and I discovered that there had been nothing written on American Zionism uh, that was of use to me in editing these letters. So I had to go do original research to get that material. And when I was done with the book on American Zionism, I had a pile of notes about this high, and I said, you know, if I can get them that high, I could write another book, uh, which I did. Um, then when I turned 40, he bit me from another direction. I had my midlife crisis. I got contact lenses, which I still wear. I bought a sports car, which my older son totaled. <laughs> and I went to law school. Kept my wife. <laughs> um, 
So law school really was Brandeis biting me as well. And then I kept coming back this way, that way. And finally, about 10 years ago, I decided that when I retired from VCU, uh, this would be my first retirement project. I would write a biography of Brandeis because there was a lot of new material that I had access. There was a lot of research that hadn't been available to other scholars. And then in the year 2002, the Commonwealth of Virginia had something called the fiscal crisis. And um, as they said, they made me an offer I could not refuse. So in the spring of 2003, I was retired. And I started in on this book, um, which uh, I was fortunate to get a very good publisher, Pantheon. And um, I had good support from foundations, including um, the Rockefeller Foundation, which allowed my wife and I to live at their palazzo in Bellagio, Italy, for a month. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> this is what heaven is like for scholars, with better food, a little bit better food, maybe. Uh, the only problem is you, can, you, know, you can only apply once every 10 years, so can't go back there. What interested me about Brandeis and what I came to appreciate is that there's actually five books in one here, which is why it's so big. Um, the man had four separate careers, any one of which was deserving of a study. First of all, he was a lawyer after the American Civil War, when the whole practice of law was changing, and he was one of those who pioneered in that practice. Now, before the war, most lawyers in the United States practiced solo, or maybe they and another lawyer shared an office and a clerk or something. And you only went to a lawyer if you were suing someone or you were going to be sued. He promised to sell me a horse, he delivered a mule, that sort of thing. But after the Civil War, with the age of industrialization, when businessmen were putting tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars into building railroads and factories and mills, it became much too expensive to wait to find out if you had transgressed the law after you laid out all that money. One thing was a $20 horse. Another thing was a $200,000 uh, uh, textile mill. So they started going to lawyers ahead of a situation saying, I want to do this. Is there a legal problem there? And if the lawyer said, yes, well, tell me how we can resolve it, because I don't want to spend all that money and then wind up you know, in court. This meant that lawyers not only had to know the law, they not only had to be advocates if their, counsel, if their clients were in court, they had to become counselors. Brandeis once said, why should someone come to me if I don't know their business as well as they do? if they're coming to me for advice. Now, he was the son of a prosperous grain merchant in Louisville, and he understood business. He understood accounting. And he understood business so well that clients were very happy to come to him. Let me give you one example of how he creatively solved a problem. One of the men he greatly admired was William McElwain, a man who had been born poor, and had really made his way in the world until he became one of the nation's leading shoe manufacturers with several plants worth millions of dollars. Because of his humble beginnings, McElwain prided himself on treating his workers well. He paid them top wages in the industry, and he tried to keep a healthy, safe environment for them to work in. 
During a small downturn, he came to Brandeis and he said, look, I, I need to reduce the wages and my men are threatening to go on strike. And I don't understand this. I treat them well. I pay them top dollar. Uh, I don't want to strike. See what you can do. So Brandeis went down to the factory, and he spoke to the workers, he spoke to the supervisors, and this is what he discovered. It was true that McElwain paid top wages, but only when the men were working, and they were only working about 30 weeks a year. That was the seasonal nature of the shoe business. So there would be periods when they would be inundated with work, you know, when orders came in, and then when things slackened, the plants would shut. Plus, there were two built-in long vacations every year when the men didn't get paid. Brandeis did not believe in averages. He said, a person can eat six meals one day and none the next, and that's an average of three a day. That's not a good way to live. So he went back to McElwain, and he said, look, the men only work 30 weeks a year. What you're paying them is less than a living wage. They can't live 52 weeks a year on what you're paying them and only working them 30. What you need to do is revise how your orders come in. So they come in on a more regular basis. And Brandeis outlined a way where there wouldn't be, you know, these crash orders where people had to order ahead of time, where the salesman out in the field didn't hold up a whole bunch, then turn them in at one time, but kept turning in orders as they got them. And within a year, McElwain had revolutionized not only his own business, but all other shoe manufacturers started copying him. And his men, instead of working 30 weeks a year, now worked 45. And there was no strike. And that was the sort of advice they came to Brandeis for. People trusted him. There's a story of two men who were in similar businesses, and they decided to join forces. They liked each other. They were friends. Uh, each one had different strengths. But they didn't know how to go about doing it. They didn't know how they should structure it. Both of them were Brandeis' clients. So each of them took a copy of their books from the business. They went to him and said, we want to join forces. Here are our books. Whatever you figure out, we'll take. Now, you had to have a great deal of trust in your lawyer and in his good sense to be able to say something like that. Brandeis also pioneered in the new law office, the one with specialization. He himself was a generalist. According to his law partner, about the only field of law he never practiced was criminal law. But he understood that in modern times, people had, when they came into the office, they needed people with far more detailed knowledge about particular fields, such as real estate, bonds, contracts, than the generalists could provide. And so his office was one of the first to adopt this, and his successor firm, Nutter, McLennan & Fish, is still in business in, in Boston, and it still has some of the same clients that went to Brandeis well over 100 years ago, including the Filene brothers, who started a department store up there. As a lawyer, Brandeis did very well indeed. In the 1890s, when most lawyers in the country were making less than $5,000 a year, he was making more than 50000 Now, this was at a time when there were no income taxes, and in modern day, that's about $1.1 million a year after taxes, if you will. Having done well, he now decides to do good. And we enter upon book two, as it were, Brandeis the Reformer. Now, many of you are aware that during the period 1897 to 1917, roughly, 
Uh, this is called the progressive era in American history when there are a great number of reforms. The presidents in the White House include Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And Brandeis is right at the heart of this. He starts out, as do most progressives, working locally in Boston, then on state levels. And then he moves on to the national stage. He makes his reputation in two events, one of which is Mueller v. Oregon. It's a uh, case before the Supreme Court testing hours legislation for women, and Brandeis introduces a whole new type of brief, one that was based not primarily on legal precedent, but on facts. He was the great practitioner of what we call sociological jurisprudence, in which he argued that the law had to take um, recognition of what the facts were. Now, the Brandeis brief was three pages of legal citation and 103 pages of references from medical journals, factory reports, state records, and the like. And he wins the case. And the Brandeis brief becomes a model in the future for all appellate lawyers who are trying to defend some new idea or, or program. It was used in Brown versus Board of Education by the NAACP, and most recently in the University of Michigan Law School case to show why affirmative action was needed um, to get variety in the classroom. Brandeis becomes friends with people like Robert La Follette. Uh, he becomes an advisor to Woodrow Wilson, which is where I came in at the beginning, helps to write the Federal Reserve Act, Federal Trade Commission Act, Clayton Antitrust Act. He's one of those people, today we would call it networking, but Everybody knew him. One of the things that I was amazed about in his letters is if you went through the list of his correspondence, it is literally a who's who of the progressive movement. There isn't a single major reformer that he doesn't know or that isn't in contact with him one way or the other, people like Jane Addams and others. And what he does, see, progressivism didn't have a single philosophy. It was a multiple movement. Some people who might agree, let's say, on factory legislation might not agree on votes for women. Some people who might support um, conservation might not agree on trade regulation, things like that. So how things got done were through a series of shifting coalitions, log-rolling, if you will. And Brandeis is one of those people who helped put coalitions together. There are many letters in his papers that start off, let's say, from Toledo, Ohio. We have this problem out here. Can you come out and help us? And the answer is, no, I can't come to Toledo. Uh, but have you spoken to so-and-so? Because he knew a reformer in Toledo or nearby who dealt with this that he could put these people in contact with. So he becomes a very important reformer during the Progressive Era. In 1914, having nothing better to do because he's running around advising Woodrow Wilson, arguing cases for the Supreme Court, and doing God knows what else, he also becomes head of the American Zionist movement. Now, Brandeis was born a Jew, but was not a practicing Jew. His mother said that uh, she taught all her children to respect all religions and practice none. And... Um, you know, she believed in God, but not in religion, as it were. And uh, Brandeis never denied the fact that he was born Jewish, but in Boston, he had very little to do with the organized uh, Boston Jewish community. His contributions to Boston Jewish charities were nominal, considering his income. But in 1912, 
The editor of the Boston Jewish Advocate, a man named Jacob DeHaas, comes to visit Brandeis to do a story on savings bank life insurance, which had been one of Brandeis's pet reforms. And as he's leaving, DeHaas asks Brandeis, uh, are you related to Louis Dembitz? And Brandeis said, he, he was my uncle. And DeHaas says, Dembitz was a noble Jew. Now, Brandeis knew that his uncle was the only practicing Jew in the family. Uh, and he had fond memories of going there, although no desire to emulate his uncle. But he wanted to know more about this. And it turns out that Louis Dembitz was one of the early supporters of Zionism in America, which is what the Haas was involved in. Brandeis is curious, and he asks the Haas to send him information, which the Haas does. Brandeis starts reading about it, and the following year, he joins the Federation of American Zionists, but avoids, just as he did in Boston, getting involved in any activities. Then World War I breaks out in August of 1914 with the assassination of the Duke in Sarajevo. And the Jewish settlements in Palestine are endangered. Why? Because economically, they relied on the citrus crops that they exported to Europe, and the European markets were now closed. So economic disaster faced the colonies. They were going to need help. And the leading group in the American Jewish community, the American Jewish Committee, was opposed to Zionism. Their relief efforts were going to be aimed at Jews in Europe, not in Palestine. So there had to be an emergency meeting to decide what to do about the Jews in Palestine, and Brandeis agrees to chair the meeting. Now, the scenario was supposed to go this way. Brandeis would get up. He would tell about how dire the circumstances were and why aid had to be gotten to the Jews in Palestine. He would make a large donation. And then Nathan Strauss, the head of the Macy's department store and the only other wealthy Jew in America who believed in Zionism, he would get up and he would make a big donation. And then those two would go talk to their friends to get more money and everybody else would go home. Except after Brandeis and Strauss made their donations, Brandeis said, I would like you all to stay because I need to know more about this organization that you have just elected me chair of. Brandeis did not lend his name. If he was going to be involved with the group, he was going to be involved with it. What he learned must have appalled his orderly mind, because at that time, out of roughly 3 million Jews in the United States, only 12,000 belonged to any sort of Zionist organization, and many of them were like local fraternal lodges. And they had a problem. The American Jewish Committee believed that Zionism was not compatible with Americanism. You couldn't be loyal to this country and to what, this, this state, this settlement, whatever it was in Palestine. Now, for people like my grandparents who came to America, they had decided what their holy land was, and it was the United States, and they were not interested in going to Palestine. Nor were they interested in getting involved in anything that might advert against their commitment to their new country and raise the type of anti-Semitism that they had fled from in Russia. So what Brandeis had to do 
was not only to organize American Jewry, men, money, discipline, that was his motto, because without members you couldn't do anything, but he had to come up with a philosophy that made it attractive for people like my grandparents to be willing to become Zionists. And he did it this way. Now, whenever Brandeis quoted the Bible, he never quoted the first five books of Moses. That's the law. That's the thou shalt, thou shalt not thing. He always quoted from the prophets. Justice, justice shalt thou pursue. That sort of thing. The ethical teachings of uh, the Jewish Bible. So what he comes up with is the notion that America and Judaism have both been pursuing the same noble goals. That for 2,000 years, the goals of Judaism have been what the goals of the United States have been for 200 years. Justice, equality, freedom. And in Palestine, what the Zionists want to do is create a society that embodies just those virtues. He then makes this leap, and believe me, it is a leap. To be good Americans, we must be better Jews. And to be better Jews, we must become Zionists, therefore conflating Zionism, Judaism, and Americanism. And it works. By 1918, uh, membership in the American Zionist movement has shot up to several hundred thousand. It has become a force to reckon with in the community. There is only one letter in the entire thousands that I've looked at that Brandeis wrote, in which there is some sort of self-satisfaction. As he told his father, he didn't get a great deal of pleasure out of accomplishing things. That's what he did. It was his work to get things done. But this one he took satisfaction from. When Woodrow Wilson named him to the United States Supreme Court in 1916, he writes to one of his Zionist colleagues, clearly the president does not think that there is any conflict between being a good American and a good Zionist. It is the only letter of that sort that Brandeis ever wrote. It gave him a great, and I think it's one of the reasons he was willing to accept uh, the offer to go on the court. This brings us to book four, Mr. Justice Brandeis. After a grueling four-month confirmation battle, And in those days, um, nominees did not appear before the Senate to defend themselves, so he had to do this through his law partner. Brandeis is finally confirmed on the court because of something that I'm sure Barack Obama wished he had, known as party discipline. Woodrow Wilson essentially told the Democrats to line up and vote, and they did. On the court, Brandeis became what I think the man I think is probably the most important jurist of the 20th century. Many of the most important doctrines that we still still deal with on the court, such as the right to privacy, um, the uh, scope of the Fourth Amendment, the meaning of freedom of speech, um, and more mundane questions like the uh, the, um, jurisdiction of federal courts, Brandeis's decisions are the lead decisions there, even though most of them were written in dissent. 
He had been interested in privacy ever since the 1890s. He and Sam Warren had written a pioneering article in the Harvard Law Review on the right to privacy based on old common law notions. In the 1920s, in a case called Olmsted, Brandeis raises the right to privacy to a constitutional level. He does it in dissent, arguing that the right to be let alone is the right most prized by civilized men. It was a case um, involving wiretapping. Um, a man named Roy Olmsted, former policeman, had set up one of the largest bootlegging rings on the West Coast. It was successful because all his former cops were on the payroll. You know, only, uh, and it was really very sophisticated. They had, you know, Harvard Business School could have used it as a case study. They had distribution points. They had salesmen. You know, they had, they had all sorts of records that they kept of which clients liked what. It was a very well-run business. And finally, federal agents, um, I mean, everybody locally knew Roy Olmsted was in charge, and they weren't about to prosecute him because um, uh, Seattle wasn't really interested in stopping the good liquor that was coming in from um, Canada. So the feds came in, and they set up a wiretap. Now, in those days, before cell phones, um, phones ran on wires, and you could be outside the house, and with a couple of alligator clips, you could listen in to the conversations, which they did without a warrant. Well, they get the information that they need. Olmsted is arrested and convicted, and he appeals to the Supreme Court on the grounds that the information secured by the wiretapping, should not have been allowed because there was no warrant. Chief Justice Taft, for a five-to-four majority, writes an extremely mechanistic opinion. There was no entry into the House, therefore the Fourth Amendment was not violated. What people do outside of a House listening in, that doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment. Well, this gets, um, Holmes calls wiretapping a dirty device, you know, dirty thing, typical Brahmin attitude. He says, but my brother Brandeis has covered the rest of it in detail, which Brandeis did. And what he did was he argued that the Fourth Amendment doesn't just protect what's in the house, it protects the notion of the right to be let alone. We have an expectation of privacy in the house. He had a clipping in his file about this new device called television. And he wanted to include a paragraph that we now have the technology that somebody across the street could actually peer in and watch what was you know, going on in the house and, and, and broadcast it. But his law clerk, Henry Friendly, thought the old man was going too far and talked him out of it. Later, Friendly said, Brandeis was right and I was wrong. He, it should have, have stayed in. Um, eventually, the whole court adopted Brandeis's view. And just a few years ago, there was an interesting case that the, the current Supreme Court uh, decided, Kilo versus the United States. Uh, if any of you have been to California, you know that in many places, when you're driving down a street, all you see are high walls. You know, everybody in California lives behind walls. And um, they thought Kilo was growing marijuana, but they didn't have the grounds to get a warrant to go in and search. So they drove up and down the street in front of his house, with a heat sensor. Now, as any of you who have ever watched the movie Saving Grace know, that in order to grow marijuana, you have to have a lot of light, which generates a lot of heat. And so they're driving by the house, and when they get to Kilo's house, the meter jumps like this, you know, and they keep going. On the basis of that, they then get a warrant, go in, sure enough, the marijuana is there, and they arrest Kilo. And he argues that 
that was snooping and that without a warrant for the use of the heat device, they can't use the other evidence. And the Supreme Court agrees. And interestingly enough, the author of the opinion is Antonin Scalia, who, although he doesn't mention Brandeis, essentially is writing about the right to be let alone and how you can't use technological devices to snoop in private places. Another area where Brandeis's justice is, is still widely quoted is First Amendment. And his decision, a man who is not known for great eloquence, Whitney, is one of the great pieces of literature in court history. Now, we all know about Holmes and, you know, can't shout fire in a crowded theater and all that. It's a wonderful aphorism, but it doesn't tell lower court judges a thing. And that was the problem with Holmes. He wrote very well. He wrote at a standing desk. Most of his opinions are three paragraphs long because he said then his knees started to ache. And so he would finish. But while Holmes wrote beautifully, he didn't provide the type of guidance that lower court judges need when there is, for example, some sort of restriction on speech. What's allowed, what's not allowed? And why is it important? And in Whitney, Brandeis gave us that answer. It's important because in a democracy, citizens have to be informed so they can partake in the serious decisions of determining policy, and they cannot do that unless they have heard all sides of an issue. And that the cure to bad speech is more speech, and that unless there is imminent danger of violence, uh, not just the possibility, but imminent danger, you do not uh, choke off speech. There's a fifth book in there, too, and that's um, Louis Brandeis, Private Man. And as you might expect from the man who authored The Right to Privacy, he doesn't tell us a lot. Uh, his daughter told me that after he retired, he was burning his papers when she stopped him. And he said, why would anybody want these things? She said, historians would. He said, well, I'll see what I allow them. You know, and so a lot of the really private stuff is there. For example, we know that he was a target of anti-Semitism, but by reading the surviving letters, you would not have the, any notion that it affected him at all. But we do know certain things. Um, his wife, Alice, suffered from neurasthenia, which was um, sometimes called the vapors. And it was a form of depression that affected a number of middle-class women in the late 19th century, women who were bright and who felt um, constrained in their households, sort of um, you know, the Betty Friedan thing 50 years earlier. And um, she suffered depression so severe that she really couldn't function and had to be put into a private sanitarium several times, during which time Brandeis was a single parent. Now, we don't have to feel sorry for him in the sense, you know, he wasn't like a divorced young woman who's trying to raise two kids, you know, working as a burger flipper. He had a nanny and a maid and a cook. Um, but he was one who got the children up in the morning. He was the one who went over their homework with them, who walked them to school, who read them stories, um, and um, who re you know, really took over the burden of the household to try to spare Alice as much work, work as possible. She recovers when they go to Washington, because in Washington at that time, the only woman who had greater social status than the wife of a Supreme Court justice was the wife of the President of the United States. 
And Alice comes into her own. She entertains. She goes to the theater with Mrs. Woodrow Wilson. People come to exchange cards with her. Uh, they run a Monday afternoon tea that becomes the social salon of Washington for 20 years. Um, and she doesn't have any more recurrences. Um, Brandeis um, struck many people as cool, icy. Somebody once said that even his love letters read like Brandeis briefs. Um, <laughs> Which really isn't true, but he did, you know, he, he did this thing, which I unfortunately adopted also, uh, of writing letters first, second, third. They're very well organized. I mean, you can follow them, but they're, they're not terribly warm. But people who knew him gave us quite a different impression. This was a man who loved jokes but couldn't tell them because he started laughing at the punchline three, you know, three sentences too early. Um, as a young man, um, he enjoyed going out and... Um, one of his clerks later said that even in old age, he had an eye for the pretty girl. Um, he was a gentleman. Um, after all, he did come from Louisville, and, at, and whenever there was a gathering at his house, he refused to sit down until all the women had been seated, uh, which meant that his clerks had to run around and make sure everybody was seated. And, um, of course, a lot of people thought they should stay standing until a justice of the Supreme Court was, was seated, and um, this one woman was standing there waiting, and Brandeis's um, messenger, Poindexter, comes up, takes the chair, and pushes it forward and says, sit. <laughs> you know, so I've tried to get as many of these personal anecdotes as possible in. Um, you know, I, I interviewed people. I knew both of Brandeis's um, daughters when they were alive, um, I met uh, a lot of his clerks when I was first starting work on, on this project. There was this wonderful evening when I was out in Madison, Wisconsin, and E.B., Elizabeth Brandeis, uh, hosted a dinner for me that included some of the clerks who were then teaching at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Um, three of his grandchildren are still alive, um, and they helped me uh, with the book. So we've gotten stories in, you know, it's still not as complete as a historian would like um, by far. Um, although, you know, the reviewers have been kind about this. Um, I know far more about Brandeis, the lawyer, the reformer, the Zionist, or the judge, than I know about Brandeis, the individual, and he would have said that's the way it should be. And with that, I think I'll stop and I'll be glad to answer any questions anybody may have? We now have people scurrying around with microphones. So if you have a question, there we go. First question. I very much enjoyed your book. It's an excellent history of 1880 to 1940. Uh, in it, you speak of uh, Judge Justice Brandeis as a political advisor, particularly to Woodrow Wilson and subsequently to uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Perhaps you would comment on that, and is that a role as, as a political activist that other justices have played over the years? Uh, you all heard the question. Uh, you can't do it anymore. Um, when I wrote this book, I went, um, I asked Justice Ginsburg, you know, 
where do you get advice about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable? And there's the Office of Judicial Counsel that just uh, does that, although as the head of it told me, the Supremes can do what they want, but you know they do ask us every now and then. But what has happened is that ever since Abe Fortas, Supreme Court justices have been very, very careful about what they do in the political arena. Now, prior to that, um, people, you know, you have to remember that we've changed the way we appoint judges, for the worse, I think. Now, almost all judges are appellate court judges. That's where they come from, federal appellate court judges. The last person who was not a judge who went on the Supreme Court was Lewis Powell in 1972. But presidents used to appoint lawyers. They used to appoint attorneys general. Hugo Black was a senator when he was appointed. Robert H. Jackson had been solicitor general and um, attorney general. Felix Frankfurter came from the Harvard Law School. Now, these people were appointed not just because they had good legal minds, but because they had good political heads as well. Um, and they continued to advise the presidents. Um, Franklin Roosevelt had a Wednesday night poker party that uh, Robert Jackson was a member of, and so was William O. Douglas. Jackson helped frame the Lend-Lease speech. Um, Felix Frankfurter helped draft the law. They didn't see this as a conflict of interest at the time. Uh, we now think a little differently. Also, Brandeis, for the most part, with just one or two exceptions, was careful about what he spoke about and what he did. Uh, a lot of times, people came to him um, seeking uh, references for particular positions because he knew everybody so he could recommend them. But there is one story um, that's in the book. Alice Brandeis and a friend of hers are having tea. And the phone rings and the operator says it's the president. And first Alice thinks it's joking. The operator, they were living in an apartment hotel. Now, no, it's the president. And so she says, well, ring up to 809. That was the judge's study. About half an hour later, there's a knock on the door, and there's Woodrow Wilson with two Secret Service men. And he you know, says hello to Mrs. Brandeis, you know, and says that his wife had enjoyed going to the theater with her the other night. And then he goes up to see Brandeis. They spend about an hour there. And the problem was, this is in World War I, there were bottlenecks of deliveries. And Wilson, who was very much opposed to big government, was under enormous amount of pressure to essentially nationalize the railroads for the duration of war so that instead of having 40 or 50 different railroad lines, there would be one that could be coordinated. And if he did that, who was going to run it? And Brandeis convinces him that during wartime it was acceptable to do this, and he suggests that William G. McAdoo, who was then Secretary of the Treasury, also be named to head it, which Wilson does. Um, now... The problem here, of course, is that this issue became, came before the court a year or two later. Brandeis did not recuse himself, probably because it was a 9-0 to zero vote and he felt there was no reason to recuse. Uh, but that's the sort of thing I don't think judges would do now. But they did routinely at that time. The country was in war. The president was asking for advice. What was he supposed to do? Uh, but as I said, ever since Fortas, uh, justices have been very, very careful in their dealings with presidents. Any other question? Over there. 
Take the, take the microphone, please. Thank you. Just as a sidebar, uh, what is the link, if any, between Brandeis and Brandeis University? Uh, is there a story there? Um, Brandeis did not want a university named after him. Um, after his death, Abe Sacker, who was one of the great academic, academic entrepreneurs of our time, managed to talk one of Brandeis's daughters into it, Susan. The other daughter was dead set against it. But all he needed was the permission of one, and he went ahead. So uh, it's named after him because Brandeis was one of the great Jews you know, in American history. Uh, it is doubtful if he would have been willing to have it done. Uh, since then, the University of Louisville Law School has been renamed the Louis de Brandeis School. He definitely said no to that in his lifetime. Um, and there's, here's here's a, a, a wonderful story. The man took no honorary degrees, things like that, and there's a story that one year the Yale Law Faculty voted Brandeis an honorary degree, and the dean vetoed it. The next year, the faculty voted it again, the dean said yes, and the president of Yale vetoed it. The third year, the faculty, the dean, and the president said yes, and the board of visitors said no. <laughs> the next year, the faculty, the dean, the president, the visitors said yes, and Brandeis said no. <laughs> uh, and this was told by a member of the Yale Law faculty, so we assume it's true. Um, so that, there really is no direct connection other than that Brandeis arrogated the name and Sacker used it shamelessly. Uh, there's right there. What caused the change after Abe Fortas that they stopped doing it? What was the big thing? Uh, that's a long story. Fortas was an advisor to Lyndon Johnson, one of his close friends. Uh, Fortas was a lawyer who created landslide Lyndon in that contested Texas election. And neither Fortas nor um, Johnson saw anything wrong in Fortas continuing to come to the White House to advise his good friend, the president. The problem was the Vietnam War, <coughs> which, as the backlash against um, LBJ, washed over. And when he wanted to appoint Fortas as Chief Justice to take Earl Warren's place, everything came bubbling up. And two things happened, one of which news of Fortas's involvement as an advisor. After all, there were pictures of him. I don't know if you've ever seen this famous one. He was a short man. Johnson was tall. There's a picture of Johnson leaning over and Fortas looking up you know, at, at that. That was taken after he went on the court you know, at the White House. Plus, um, Fortas was taking money for a series of lectures he was giving at a law school in Washington, and the source of the money was a man with questionable criminal connections whose case might very well wind up before the Supreme Court. Um, and so you had this big backlash against Fortas. He finally had to um, withdraw as a candidate for chief justice, and then after that he resigned from the court. And since then, um, people have seen his relation to Johnson as something that a, sep no, a member of a separate branch of government should not be involved in.
Um, you mentioned that there was a four-month battle for um, Justice Brandeis' nomination. Did that have to be with, do with his being Jewish, or was there something else going uh, on? That there was anti-Semitism involved, there's no question. But I don't think it was the most important thing. The most important thing is Brandeis was a radical. Now, he always saw himself as a conservative. Remember, free, But... This is a man, radical in this sense, not that he, he was not a socialist or a communist. He distrusted systems. He believed in the free enterprise system, but he believed in transparency, and he was opposed to big business that utilized its power unfairly. He took on J.P. Morgan and beat him. Uh, he showed that William Howard Taft had lied to the American people in the Pinchot-Ballinger affair. He had defended... Uh, progressive legislation before the court. As far as the powers that be of the American establishment, this man was a radical. The fact that he was a successful lawyer and a millionaire meant nothing to them. No, he opposed big business, especially in Boston, where he had uncovered the fact that the big State Street banks, which were tied into all you know the old Brahmin families, had helped to underwrite some of Morgan's... Um, expansionist activities that he said were not good for New England. Uh, that was the main thing. Uh, there was another thing, though. A lot of his practice of the law, he tried to be what he called counsel to the situation. He wouldn't take a case unless he thought the client was in the right. He once turned down Mark Twain, who wanted him to represent him in a libel suit because he didn't think the author was, was correct. Um, in the winter, he deliberately kept the temperature in his office cold uh, so that clients coming in uh, wouldn't waste his time chit-chatting. They would sit there uh, bundled up, make their case, and if Brandeis you know, agreed to help them, they would run out into the warmth of the winter. Um, and he was, you know, when he did take a case, he was ferocious. He was one of the best trial lawyers of his time. You know, the stories there are legend. Uh, but he wasn't the sort of lawyer that other lawyers liked, not just because he beat them regularly. If you go into court and one lawyer asks for a continuance, for whatever reason, it might be a family thing or it might be he's not quite ready that day, the practice of the bar is usually not to object. Why? Because you know that down the road, you're probably going to ask for a continuance, and you, you know, so it's what most lawyers do for one another. Brandeis wouldn't. I'm ready. You should be ready. And uh, this is my client's time we're wasting. I don't waste my client's time. And this did not make him very popular. Plus, as I said, he usually won. One more question. I, my, my manager here says one more question. Yes, sir. Uh, very, very question. Uh, was uh, Brandeis involved in the eugenics movement at all? Uh, no. Uh, was Brandeis involved in the eugenics movement? No, although he did vote with Holmes and Buck v. Bell. Uh, but he was not involved. He voted on that primarily because it was a state matter, state law, and he didn't see at that time any constitutional issue. Now, of course, we know better. But, at that but he wasn't directly involved in the movement at all. Okay. Thank you very much. Do I just go?